All right. Um, when I was a kid, we had this song that we would sing at some like kids' events, VBS, that kind of stuff. And the song. I tried to mute that. This is the song. Father Abraham had many songs. This is the song. Um, <laughs> I thought I'd done so well, Preston, to mute that, but I did not. And it's very, yeah, so we know this song, right? And the song, it's really loud. All right, so that's the song, right? And we, we know the motions. The kids go crazy on it. And when I was a kid, I always felt like it was a very meaningless song. I felt like the reason that we did that song was mostly to get the kids hyped up and also to drain them of their energy kind of simultaneously, right? So they're like, whoa, this is fun to be at church, and I'm too tired to talk during the lesson, right? And so we did that song, and we had them do the hand movements, and we have them move around like crazy. Um, but I always just thought it was just a weird little song, you know, like, I'm Abraham's son, and so are you. And so why? What does that matter? I didn't, as a kid, I just always thought it was silly. I thought that they could have put any name in the world in that spot, right? It could have been uh, Father Benjamin. It could have been Father Zacchaeus, whatever. You could have put any name in there. It's a Bible name. It makes it a Bible song, right? And it just always seemed very silly and frivolous to me. Why would Abraham matter? Why would Abraham be a big deal? And why would it matter that I'm his child? What does it even mean for me to be a child of Abraham? Um, and that's what we're going to get into today. As we continue through this book of Galatians, we get to a chapter that is very heavy on talking about the role of Abraham and our faith, and why it is a big deal for us to be children of Abraham, and how it's not just this random sort of story that we um, can uh, connect to. Um, just to keep us up to date, last week we talked about chapters 1 and 2, and they were largely about Paul just getting really angry and kind of losing his cool, right? This is a fascinating letter. There's about three verses of like, hi, it's good to see you. Um, I'm glad to write to you. You guys are really great. By the way, why have you, aband you know, abandoned the gospel? Like he just gets so mad and so angry about what this church is doing. And so last week we talked about how the real big theme of this is that the gospel should be for everyone or it's not really the gospel. It's not good news if it's not available for all. And we talked about the ways that they tried to make people become Jews first before they could become Christians. And Paul says that's not the way it works. You are defined by your faith, not by keeping all of these traditions and rules and these things that God told Moses to do, but now don't matter any longer. And so let's move on to a better definition of what it means to be a, a child of God. And that's where we get to in Galatians 3. You foolish Galatians, he's not done being angry, <laughs> We who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? 
So I ask again, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Um, I love that he does a double take there. I just noticed this reading. He's like, are you idiots? Did, was it this or this? Let me repeat. Are you idiots? You know, like, I mean, he is just ready to go. Paul begins this section by talking about the Holy Spirit and the experience of the early church of the Spirit. And his argument is pretty simple. Many of you were Jews long before you accepted Jesus as the Messiah. Did you find that circumcision and keeping the Sabbath and eating kosher, did those things do what the Holy Spirit does? Did you do those things and the Holy Spirit came on you, or did you believe Jesus and the Holy Spirit came on you? And he's trying to create a very clear distinction for them. The Bible talks about how in Acts 2, when the Spirit comes upon the church and the way the Spirit moves in the church, there is a clear, discernible difference from their life before Jesus and their life after Jesus. And he goes, let's just make it real simple. Did eating kosher used to do miracles? And they go, well, no, we never had miracles. We were just eating. Okay. But when you believed in Jesus, what started happening? People started getting healed. You started hearing people speaking in tongues. You saw this pouring in the Spirit. You saw the Spirit change your life. You saw transformation in your heart. Paul will make the point in other places in Scripture that keeping the law was a real pain in the neck before the Spirit, but now the Spirit helps you to do it in a far better way. And so he says, just remember the order here. Remember how this stuff works. And he uses all of that as then an intro. You know, pragmatically speaking, that life with the Spirit does something, that trusting Jesus does something, that keeping Mosaic Law never did. And the reason for that is because it's about Abraham. It's not about Moses. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Oh, just had one. Okay. Sometimes I forget how many slides I have. Um, what happens here is Paul sets us up in this really interesting sort of like time machine of an idea. And what he says is theologically... The story of Abraham and the promise of Abraham that we covered in our big picture of scripture series before this, that promise that all nations would be blessed through Abraham, that is connected with the Gentiles coming into the church. That God, by his power, and you know, we talked about God in and with, uh, within or without, uh, outside of time, Thursday night. Okay, this is one of those passages that suggests outside of time because there's this idea here from Paul that when Abraham was made promises about the nations being blessed, that God was thinking ahead to the Gentiles and their acceptance. And that when the Gentiles were accepted, God was thinking back to Abraham and the promise that he made, that those two things are married to one another. That God had always had this purpose to bring in the Gentiles into the church, and that was always connected to who Abraham was. And so when God made that promise, he, he defined his people by the promise of Abraham. 
that this promise that all nations would be blessed became a huge sort of structural foundational thing to what God wanted to do in the world. Is that the whole world, Gentiles and Jews, would be blessed through the family of Abraham, a Jewish man. But not really, right? Because Abraham is kind of the father of Judaism, but Abraham is never taught about kosher law, right? Abraham is never taught about Sabbath. Uh, if you know your Bible well, Genesis 12 comes long before Exodus 20, when we start getting the Ten Commandments and all these rules. And so this is what a lot of what they're trying to figure out in Galatia is how do we balance the Abraham stuff and the Moses stuff. And Paul is going to make even more explicit how that works. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ or the Messiah. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. All right, some of you are probably going, oh, there's lots of words there. I'm not sure exactly what just happened. All right? Here's what's happening is um, Paul is purposefully setting out a comparison of Moses and Abraham and how the two of them works. And he uses legal terminology. He, uh, I mean, he says a covenant cannot have addendums. And we're like, what? What are you talking about? Uh, it's very simple. If me and Seth write a contract and we make an agreement, a third party or even one of us can't come back later and go, uh, actually, I'd like to change the rules of that agreement, right? We had to agree on it mutually. We already have a pact with one another. And the reason you sign a contract is so that you know the ground rules and they can't change from underneath you. And Paul is saying this is how the promise of Abraham and the law of Moses work. The law must fit within the promise because the promise was made first. And it's not just theological shotgun, okay? It's not just like, hey, uh, promise was first and first, you know, first dibs, right? Like, this is not what's going on. There's a further idea here that not only is the promise first, but the promise is foundational, right? So the promise made to Abraham is the the, the um, the foundation and the bedrock upon which the law of Moses is built. And what Paul is telling us is don't become so obsessed with the law that you forget the bigger thing it was built on. Abraham is more important than Moses because Moses is literally built on the concrete foundations of the promise of Abraham. Now, that may sound a little silly, but it becomes real important when you start saying who ultimately is God's people, what defines God's people. And he will, this, the, the claim here of Paul will always be you can't make it on the smaller piece built on top of the bigger piece, right? You have to go to the roots, to the foundation, which is the promise. He then makes another argument that's really weird to us, uh, where he goes grammatically about seeds, Right? And he says, the Bible doesn't say seeds plural, it says seeds singular. And this is hard for us because this seems like a pedantic argument for most modern Western English-speaking people. It's particularly difficult because we use the word seed in the plural, right? 
We'll use the word seed plural, not just, uh, you don't have to use S. You can say, oh, look at him spread all that seed in the backyard, and you mean multiple seeds. But the argument is basically, Paul is saying, God's promise was to one person, to a Messiah, an anointed one, a chosen child of, Ab of, of Abraham in Jesus. Not to lots of them, not to all kinds of different people, but to one particular person. And so he makes that argument based on the grammar. It works in ancient people's minds in a way it doesn't work for ours, or he's a terrible arguer, one way or the other. We just, you know, we just don't like that argument. We don't find it, it holds a lot of weight, but uh, apparently it did for the people he speaks to. So Paul goes on, and this sermon could get really long and really complicated, so I'm going to um, summarize the next section without reading it and going through it. But Paul basically goes, well, what, what purpose is the law then? If it's all built on the promise and the law is just additional, why do we have the law? And he makes some interesting claims that effectively the law was jail, okay? The law was, a, uh, some people would say a schoolmaster. More modern translations tend to say a guardian or maybe a bodyguard, right? The law was this thing that kind of kept it under control. God knew that the Messiah was coming. He knew he'd fulfill the promise of Abraham, but he also knew that we really couldn't handle life without some kind of guidance. And so the law was put in to teach us what was right and wrong. And I am borrowing from Romans here a little bit. The law was there to tell you what's right and wrong, and frankly, to kind of put you all under lock and key. Okay, we can trust humanity to not burn this thing to the ground if we give them the law, and it kind of keeps them in place. And there's a sense that it also kind of gathers us in one place so that when Jesus comes, Jesus can kind of open the jail gate and let us all out at once, right? He doesn't have to deal with us scattered all over the place. The law kind of funneled us into one place. And so the law was kind of a prison that kept us from getting too wild and crazy without the Spirit in our lives. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Paul here is going to get real practical, right? All this talk, Abraham, why does Abraham matter, right? And he says it's very simple. The reality is you guys are all fighting with each other and mistreating yourselves, each other, because of how you're defining yourselves. You're sitting around and you get, I mean, this whole thing started on this potluck situation, right? Where all of a sudden you had Jewish tables and Gentile tables, like high school all over again. People are separating, dividing, aren't getting along. And Paul goes, that is not how this works. When you were baptized, and, you know, the baptism guy in, in me just has to point out, this is really significant that baptism is such a big deal that Paul says that's the point at which this happens. It's very interesting, right? He says, when you were baptized, you were clothed with Christ. I almost imagine uh, like a bad ghost costume, right? Like, you know, they always do this in the cartoons, but I don't think I've ever seen a kid in real life do it. You cut out eye holes, right? And you pull the sheet over you and you're a ghost. There's kind of this, I mean, that's a, maybe a terrible analogy, but there's this sense that this is what happened when you're baptized. Whatever is here, 
no matter how big or small it is, no matter what it looks like, no matter what its history is, whatever you are, Jesus is put on top of you. That becomes the clothes that you wear. It becomes the outward symbol to the rest of the world of who you are. And so when you're baptized, you become clothed with Christ, and that becomes the most important thing about your identity. It becomes who you are. It becomes the thing that matters most in this world because that is the thing that you have put on the same way that you would put on a costume or clothes or something like that. That is who you are. And it changes the way that you guys operate. It changes who you are and what you believe in. Um, and then he immediately starts saying, when you do it, it should break down barriers. And he immediately goes to the way the ancient society would have divided themselves. He says, it means there is no longer Jew or Gentile. This is huge. Jews in the ancient world would have thought Gentiles were kind of dirty, nasty, gross people that were always engaging in prostitution and eating gross food and all this kind of stuff, right? This is the way Jewish people would have thought of Gentiles. And for the Gentiles, there is a large amount we know in the first century of sort of anti-Semitism, right? This idea that Jews are lazy because they take every Saturday off. The rest of us are working on Saturday and they take it off. And there's just, there's, uh, there's even cartoons in the ancient world depicting Jewish people in nasty ways because Jews and Gentiles don't like each other. It's a way that they divide. He says there is neither slave nor free. Now, again, we want to try to probably put that in the ancient context of ancient slavery. Our slavery makes it a lot harder. But it's, these are really economic categories for Paul. Uh, we might say rich and poor. He says how much money you've got doesn't make a difference. Now that you're in Jesus, that's not a big deal. He then goes even to gender. This is huge. Male and female. You are all one in Christ. The ancient world is heavily divided by gender roles. Uh, we even, we're not sure. We think Jewish synagogues of the time, uh, we know later in history, and we think even back then, sometimes would separate, right? Men would worship on one side, and women would worship on the other. And there was this sense of kind of what a woman's role and duty was and what a man's role and duty was. And Paul goes, enough. Stop messing with that stuff. And so I come back to Father Abraham, right? Why does this song matter? Why did we subject ourselves to that? The amazing thing about Father Abraham that I never realized as a kid is that it is true no matter what room you sing it in. There is no country on earth that you can go to where believers cannot sing this song and say, Father Abraham had many sons. I'm one of them and so are you. It does not matter what ethnicity you have. It does not matter what language you speak. You are one of Abraham's children. There is no room where there is someone poor enough or rich enough to no longer count as being a child of Abraham. Right? No matter, you're not, you don't have to turn in mom or dad's tax form to see if you're eligible to sing Father Abraham because you're all one of his children. Little boys and little girls can sing, I am one of them and so are you, the same as one another, right? Now, of course, it's a little disturbing that Father Abraham had many sons. We probably should change it to Father Abraham had many kids, okay? I don't know. That may be an indictment that this is the one the church is slowest to learn from Paul, right? But nonetheless, there's this sense that our daughters and our sons are equally children of Abraham. 
no matter how they were born or, or what their you know, gender is. And this is powerful that everybody who believes in Jesus is equally a child. They are all one. And so I was thinking, how is this sermon different than last week? Because last week, the, the, the point of the sermon was if the, God, if the good news isn't for everybody, it's not good news. And it felt like this was very much the same. And I want to shade it this way. Uh, last week, we kind of talked about the outside world and how we position ourselves to new people and how we can never close off the church from new people because it's, the good news is for everybody. I want to change this focus a little bit to inside our church for this week. Paul says, if you've been baptized, if you're part of Jesus' family, this stuff does not matter as much as, as, as being part of Jesus' family. When you look at one another, stop looking at each other based on how much money you have or what your racial background is or, um, or uh, I'm trying to think of the third one, um, Jew, Gentile, rich and poor. Oh, or your gender. Stop looking at one another. As, you know, when you see somebody, when I see Courtney, she is my fellow heir in Abraham, Right? We live in a society that wants to define her by a million other things. But Paul says inside the church, when we have been baptized, when we have put on Jesus, when we see one another, the first and primary thing we see is Jesus. We see the promise of Abraham, that God loves that person. And all that other stuff can take a backseat to welcoming and loving and accepting and using that person in our community, because they're all the same. They are one. And we don't want to do that because we're constantly pushed to not do that. No matter what kind of world we live in, no matter how progressive we think we may be, we're constantly in this place where we want to put somebody into a pigeonhole based on those other factors instead of first and foremost saying, you are a fellow heir to the promise of Abraham. And Paul says to this church in Galatia, you guys that are not getting along based on this other stuff, it's baloney. And, he, and what's so fascinating is he does it with the law of Moses, okay? This is something that God literally gave to his people, something that was good and great and helpful. But he says, even the law of Moses, if you're sitting down and you go, well, I'm circumcised and you're not, and the Bible says you should be, so he goes, enough, that's ridiculous, you see Jesus in that person before you see what happened to their foreskin, right? I'm sorry, that's a little <laughs> blue. But you know what I'm saying? Like, this is, this is what he's saying. And there's so much other stuff that's the first thing that hits our eyes. And Paul says, no, it is Jesus. If you have been baptized, you have been clothed with him. And when you are clothed with him, you are an heir to the promise of Abraham. And that promise looms larger over you than even whether or not you follow God's law in the book of Leviticus and Exodus, right? It's bigger than that. And so we've got to allow, we've got to allow, we have to start to see people first and foremost as brothers and sisters, and once you do that, you know, the other stuff still matters, okay? You know, like, there are still ways that Fran and I interact differently based on probably some gender difference, right? And it's not that we ignore it, 
but that however I treat her has to first and foremost go through the funnel of she's a fellow heir of Abraham with me. And that's the most important thing. All right. Um, Q&A. What do we want to talk about today? Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, okay, so I'll, I'll use that metaphor real quick if that will help you. Uh, I had a teacher that suggested that, that covenants in the Hebrew Bible are like bowls, okay? They're like stacking bowls. Maybe you, ha you probably have these in your house, right? You got a really big one, a slightly smaller one, and they get smaller and they all fit together. Um, and he basically suggested that there's a series of these. Uh, he starts with a covenant to Noah, which is a covenant to all humanity, that says... Uh, I'm not going to totally destroy the world like I did in the flood, right? So you don't have to worry about epic flood coming your way anytime soon. So that's kind of the first major bowl. And then Abraham is a bowl that kind of fits in that. It's about God's chosen people. The first one is how God will care for humanity. Then it's how God will care for his chosen people. And then uh, the next one that we go in is the promise to Moses. And Moses' bowl is the law. And then there's the promise to David, which is another bowl that sits in that. And much of this argument is about which bowl is the lowest you can go and still be God's people. And the Judaizers here, the people arguing for circumcision, saying that, or say that Moses' bowl is the lowest. And Paul says, no, no, no. You can pull that one out. It's Abraham's bowl that's the lowest. Does that make sense? So yes, that is a metaphor I've used before. I'm glad you remembered it. <laughs> 